Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world we live in, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have an outstanding chat room, so Ravinder... Tell us all about it, please. We have an outstanding chat room because we have an amazing group of people in there and everyone contributes a whole different angle, you know, to the conversation that's going on on the air. So adds a great new dimension and we all learn a lot in the process. So it is a really good group and you really need to come join us. So come to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In this week's Spotlight we turn our attention to the notion of irrational skepticism. Now, before we begin, let me say that I think there is such a thing as healthy skepticism, and we should all be certain that we maintain a healthy portion in the cupboards of our mind. Indeed, in today's world, probably more than ever, given our 24-7 media cycle and the unending information overload, we should have a conscious century on alert somewhere in our mind at all times, a guardian whose only assignment is to protect against the infiltration of nonsense and irrationality in our thinking. That said, not every idea that is untestable or fails to be empirically verifiable should be discarded, and skeptics who so argue have lost their way and forgotten what skepticism really is. You see, last week we received a letter regarding our show. And a skeptic basically stated, why would we air something as absurd as the show that we aired based on afterlife perceptions? Well, let's look at skepticism for a minute. Webster defines skepticism this way. Doubt as to the truth of something. But Webster also recognizes that philosophically speaking, the word arises from a tradition defined this way, quote, the theory that certain knowledge is impossible, close quote. Think about those two definitions for a moment. On one hand, we are predisposed to doubt, to question, And on the other, we recognize that some forms of knowledge are inherently impossible to prove. For me, healthy skepticism integrates both definitions. I do believe we should question, investigate, authenticate, and so forth, checking for consistencies and truth, especially before we dedicate our lives to some belief. However, we should also recognize from the outset that many things in our world are not objectively verifiable and that this is in no way a disqualification of them. For each and every one of us, 
live private lives to some extent, and our experiences are therefore not always verifiable. Thus, to deny this aspect of reality is to deny our own existence, and where that may go down for some, for most of us, it's rather ridiculous. Now, I have heard many protest what they view as superstitious nonsense, this idea of a god or creator who created all things. Some folks have prospered greatly and built entire reputations around their attacks on people of faith. Richard Dawkins comes to mind, and he is an excellent example of one who plays with being a skeptic, especially for juveniles. Young people around the world quote Dawkins and the words from his book, The God Delusion. But what exactly is Dawkins basing his initial criticism on? Simply stated, definitions. Let's play with definitions for a moment. First, we all recognize that words have contrived meanings. That is, they arise out of agreement and can be modified through usage. Word meanings often change over time as a result, and even where the same language is concerned, they can have different cultural meanings. In England, a rubber is an erasure. And the idea of keeping your pecker up addresses the chin, chin up, as opposed to some as sexual aspect of anatomy. Now, we don't always have words to describe everything, so we agree on words that define the indescribable. For example, the ineffable experience of the mystic simply means, as Plotinus himself might have put it, an experience beyond the ability to linguistically communicate. In Huxley's perennial philosophy, we find that the mystics of all time and throughout most traditions have experienced what we can only formally know as the ineffable experience. These same mystics, after informing us that what they experience cannot be translated into words, then often attempt to paint a verbal picture of their experience and understanding of the infinite. Now, give the word infinite a thought for a minute as well. For this word introduces something that itself can only be approximated with the language of math. That is, we have the idea of something beyond everything, but what exactly does that mean? For there is no number so large that you cannot add one to it, and no one had to teach us that. Okay, to my point. If I suggest that I have an idea of a geometrical shape, and I describe my idea as a shape with four opposite and equal sides, each side placed at 90 degree angles from each other, you easily grasp the picture of a square. Now, if I describe a geometrical figure whose circumference can be obtained by multiplying the radius by pi times 3, and which contains a total interior angle of 90 degrees, something goes wrong. My definition is not only ambiguous, it is downright wrong, for it is impossible. 
By contrast, if I inform you that I saw color, unlike any color I have ever seen, but it was unbelievably beautiful, how have I invalidated my experience? Just because I am unable to adequately provide a mental picture for you does not mean the color was not seen by me, or for that matter, that the color does not exist at all. Unlike the circle description with an interior of only 90 degrees, there is nothing impossible about an ineffable color. Our mystics and theologians are often pushed to describe detail. They simply either do not have access to or cannot because there is nothing in our vocabulary to reference. Like the color that fails to be identified because it is different from any other color in our vocabularies, mystical experiences often give rise to approximate language, rough comparisons by way of descriptions and the like. So, for example, our mystics inform us of a time without time, an absolute monism, a transcendent, omnipresent source, a creative power within and without everything, a certain omniscience, even omnipotence, and so forth. And the Dawkins of the world jump on this as though it were a literal description, like our geometrical example of an impossible circle. The fact is, a statement leading to a question such as those often offered by irrational skeptics has no place in either the world of science or metaphysical inquiry. To be clear, it is child's play and utter foolishness to insist that there is no such thing as a god because some of these ineffable approximations offered to help you grasp the paradox of being and the infinite nature of it all seem to contradict themselves. When the approximate description includes a word like omnibenevolent. This addresses a feeling experienced and not an argument for good or evil. When the word omnipotent is used by the mystic, it too reflects a personal feeling and not the literal definition that might be deduced by the irrational skeptic and then treated as a trite argument that might go something like this, well, if God is all-powerful, then can he build a rock so large he can't lift it? Now, in fairness, unfortunately, many of the insights reported as a result of mystical experiences find their way into doctrine that sometimes becomes rigid. When this happens, the Dawkins of the world have every right to point, out, to point it out as nonsense. But to discard it altogether, to encourage others to throw spirituality and religion away as superstitious nonsense, well, that's to throw the baby out with the proverbial dirty bathwater. Your thoughts on this, Ravinder? Definitely. Um, the fact is you have to pay attention all the time. You have to keep thinking it all through for yourself and coming up with your own your own decisions, I think. It's complex. It's complex. It's well, complex. and most importantly, you cannot turn your back or use logic to paint someone in a corner on the basis that 
their experience is unverifiable. That's most certainly true. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our guest was Dr. Alan Bodkin, and we discussed induced after-death communications, or IADCs. During the conversation with Dr. Bodkin, I misspoke. I said that the idea beyond a reasonable doubt, something we call our own investigation of life after death, was suggested by myself during dinner with Victor Zamet. In fact, I was mistaken. The dinner meeting I was thinking of was actually with Dr. John Turner and Mr. and Mrs. Whitley Stryber. All right, Barbara wrote, I really like Dr. Bodkin's attitude. He is helping people and doesn't claim anything else. Jamie wrote, I think Botkin provides a real service regardless of whether the communication is really from the other side or not. CB remarks, so whether the person actually sees those entities or if the subconscious conjures them is of no matter. It is the relief from the trauma that is the point for Dr. Botkin. Aaron wrote, I respect that your guest doesn't want to give his personal opinion about life after death, but I think you pretty well got him out. I think you pretty well got it out of him. He is a believer. Linda wrote, first time to listen live, and I get to hear Eldon and Dr. Botkin. I read his book recently, and I am working to get some help to our veterans in the Central Texas area. Thanks so much for having the courage to share experiences. Jeremy wrote, I would really like to know more about those observers who saw the same thing as the patient. What did they see or hear? How was their experience the same? Did I miss it? Well, no, Jeremy, I too would have liked more detail, but unfortunately we ran out of time. Teresa wrote, I am writing to compliment the way in which your provocative enlightenment show broadens the horizons of its audience. Loretta wrote, I am continually learning something from your radio shows and your CDs are improving my life in so many ways, I can't find words enough to thank you. Vita wrote, Hello, Dr. Taylor. I have your CDs on forgiving and letting go, personal power, releasing fear, doubt, and feelings of hopelessness and helplessness, and stress-free. And let me tell you, I feel different. I feel motivated with an incredible amount of energy. I feel inspired, on fire. I feel compelled to help other people. And I feel more creative. Thoughts have been popping into my head that don't normally surface. The interesting thing about it all is that I have no idea of what's on the audios. And you know what, Dr. Taylor? I don't care. It doesn't matter. Your CDs are magical, and it's so easy. Just turn on the audios, run them continuously, and go on about your day. Thank you, thank you, thank you with all my heart. Well, thank you, Vita, for sharing. And if you ever want to know what's on those intertox subliminal CDs, take a look at the affirmations printed on the package or visit our website and look them up there. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, one I've been really looking forward to, Rethinking Positive Thinking Inside the New Science of Motivation with author, and I hope I say this right, Gabrielle Erdingham. Okay, I'm going to try that again. Erdingham. Okay, she, she, German name, and you know, my German is not really good. 
Dr. Erdingham is a professor of psychology at New York University and the University of Hamburg. She is the author of more than 100 books and a book and book chapters on thinking about the future and the control of cognition, emotion, and behavior. Her major contribution to the field is research on the perils of positive thinking and on mental contrasting, a self-regulation technique that is effective for mastering one's everyday life and long-term development. Her work is published in Social and Personality Psychology, Developmental and Educational Psychology, and Health and Clinical Psychology in Organizational and Consumer Psychology, as well as in Neuropsychological and Medical Journals. Her findings contribute to the burgeoning literature on lifestyle change, and businesses and institutions have increasingly become interested in the application of her research. Her book is a great book, a great read, Rethinking Positive Thinking, and it will illuminate many of your ideas. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Gabriel Erringham. Am I saying your name correctly? Yes, you did it. <laughs> I did it? Yes, you did it. <laughs> okay, well, I got lucky. How are you today? Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We're, we're it. good in New York. It's really cold here, but um, otherwise we're fine. Well, that's good. All right. Well, Professor, we like to accomplish three things with our guest. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? So to begin, tell us about yourself. Where were you raised? What was your childhood like? Were you popular in school, an athlete, involved in extracurricular, loved music, or, you know, all of it? Unpack your life for us. Well, it's interesting. It's an interesting question. I'm usually not talking about myself, more about my message and how the message can be applied. But let's, um, let's try well, I was raised not in the United States. I was raised in Germany, um, Germany post-World War II. Um, was a very different scene than what we have now here, um, probably in California and also in New York. Um, so I was a country child, um, not an urban child, um, with all the benefits and uh, kind of uh, problems of being in the country. So nice, be really close to nature, um, close to um, kind of warm and um, also, you know, pretty happy people, um, calmness, but certainly not the biggest stimulation, um, what, you, what you can imagine if you were raised in the countryside. So then soon um, I pulled away to the city first, to this nearby city, which was Munich, um, a very pretty city. Um, and then I went to England, and then um, I went to America and um, did studies in Cambridge in England and in the University of Pennsylvania in, um, on the East Coast here in Philadelphia. Um, and then I hopped back to Germany and um, was working as a researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Berlin for 10 years, actually. Um, but you know, when you once you are in the States and you're in Europe, you have a split heart. And once you have a split heart, you need to be in the old world and in the new world. And that's what mm -hmm. we did then. Um, then I came over to NYU, to New York University in New York, 
um, together with my husband and my two children. And um, so we stayed much longer than we actually anticipated. We wanted to come for two years, and we stayed now for 14. <laughs> so New York has been very nice to us. And um, um, NYU has been a great um, university and great possibilities. And um, We're still going back a lot, so not to, you know, we don't want to miss the old world altogether, but um, we're happy here uh, in New York. You, your work has uh, made a powerful contribution. We're glad to have you. So you're raised on a farm, on a ranch? Yeah, no, not quite. In a small town, but, uh-huh. um, you know, walking distance into the woods. And um, so I was raised kind of very near the nature and enjoyed um, a lot of, you know. Was your mother or father professional or, or was well, this some... Go ahead. You know, they... You say farm. There are people who are farmers of trees, kind of, you know, farmers of woods. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what my family did. So they have a very long-time, long-term perspective. So if you plant a tree, um, your the next generation can actually harvest it. So, um, you know, we are, we are raised in the sense that our mission um, has, kind of long-term effects and has effects on growth, um, not only on trees, but also of people. So I think that sort of guided me through my life. So I wanted to make a change in people's lives, um, short-term, but also long-term. Next generation. Interesting. Now, English, you're very good at English. When did you... I mean, you're born in Germany, Second World War. How or why did you acquire English? Well, you know, I wish my English would be better. The English of my children is much, much better. They really speak, have a lot, um, have a better vocabulary. They have no accents. And so this is a, quite a different story. Um, but, you know, I come by. And, um, well, you know, in England, I, I started to acquire English. And then uh, certainly in Philadelphia. And science is um, based on English. So English is the science language. Um, people from different countries communicate in English when they um, talk about their findings and about their theory and about their studies. Um, so as a scientist, you need to learn English one way or the other. Um, and, um, and then certainly uh, the time in, in New York um, helped me to uh, get more familiar with All right, Professor. What would you say was your biggest surprise during the years of growing up? Biggest surprise during the years I was growing up. That I ended up in the States because I didn't have even a fantasy that I would end up in the States. That was not a concept I had. Um, You know, when you're raised in a a little country town, then... um, your mind goes as far as the next bigger city. Um, but there was no internet. There was, there was hardly any television. It was a very kind of... Um, yeah, it's very, it was very local. But that I would end up raising my children in the United States, well, that was kind of a very surprising uh, development. And I didn't have any dreams about that. When I, when I grew up. 
you know, my pretty bride would share that one with you. She was born in Punjab, you know. Um, they moved to New Delhi, and well, uh, that's another story. We have a break coming wow. up here. Well, that's interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more? No, but I'm going to get into what it is that you do when we come back. Maybe she will. <laughs> We're speaking with Professor Gabriel Erringham. And I'm going to I'm going to practice that till I get it perfect about her life, work, and book, rethinking positive thinking inside the new science of motivation. You can learn more about her by visiting Whoop My Life. Now that's W O O P Whoop My Life dot org. Remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. It's not your fault until you know better. Self-defeating, self-sabotaging thoughts can be eliminated. It may be difficult to accept, but the fact is magnetic resonance imaging shows us that your subconscious mind makes almost all of your decisions, while your conscious mind makes up reasons to explain your choices. In order to rid yourself of those self-defeating thoughts and ideas, the fear and doubt that can hold you back, you must change the way you talk to yourself. Nothing does this faster or better than our patented InnerTalk technology. Scientifically proven effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies, InnerTalk has repeatedly been demonstrated effective. Change has never been easier. Now you can improve your life almost automatically by rewriting the scripts hidden away in your subconscious. Guaranteed to work. No reason to wait. So don't delay. Go to innertalk.com today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Gabriel Erringen about her life, work, and book, Rethinking Positive Thinking. Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music, music that has some truly special significance, real meaning to them. Music is capable of eliciting strong emotional states, indeed even arousing coma patients, and our favorite music can say an awful lot about who we are. So now we just played Family of the Year, Hero. Why is this one special to you, Professor, and how does it tell us about who you are? Well, I'm not sure whether it tells who am I um, or who I am, but it tells that it's a very musical piece, and um, it's very emotional for me, at least. And um, it has some significance because I share the liking for the piece with my son. And um, so, you know, whenever we have a good time together, then we can play the song. And um, it makes us um, just in a good mood and um, feeling close. So is this a song that we should remember to play for you in the event that you ever, God forgive or forbid, um, were coma topes? Well, this is really nice that you say that. And I think your idea of having three pieces of mu- music um is really nice, and it's caring. And your your entire family shares that, then? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes, <laughs> okay. you know, there are different tastes. For different One more people. question about your youth before we start into your academic career. You know, if you were asked, what's the fondest memory of your childhood? Uh, probably some kind of really nice time I had with my grandmother. So she was a she was a great woman and uh, she was a model uh, throughout my life actually and she was very caring and very uh, uh, understanding so I think she influenced me a lot. All right, what led you to your academic career in psychology and in particularly to specialize in your current field of study? You know, I have a very checkered past. Um, you know, some other people, they, they know they want to become a professor and they want to do a career in a certain field. Or so that was never the case with me. Um, I started off as a photographer. Isn't that strange, a photographer? Well, um, but I liked to be with people and I liked to understand people. And I thought um, you could do that really well with um, taking pictures of people um, in kind of you know, kind of sensitive moments and um, in, in moments of relationship. Mm-hmm. So I became a photographer, and I liked aesthetics. And, um, I wanted to create things. And I loved photography, and I still do. Uh, but then after a while, um, I worked for some biologists doing the, the photos for um, their books. And then I understood that uh, biology is really interesting. It's really sort of getting at the roots of life and uh, to understand more what life is all about, how they define it, what how uh, simple uh, some people see life, but how complicated it is, in fact. And the biologists sort of um, made me understand that there is so much more to life than I imagined. So I studied biology. So I, I did my, my BA with a major in biology in, in, in Germany. And then I went into behavioral biology. What is behavioral biology? 
it's not quite holiday. Um, the theoretical framework is very different. It's much more rooted in um, Darwinian thinking, um, mm -hmm. and it's very observational. But I did a lot of observations, especially of children. Um, I love that. So to see how children interact uh, and what how they interact when they're alone versus with other people, or with certain people, with adults versus children, when they feel observed versus not observed, and, um, and then also you know, how they interact when um, they are free, kind of have choice, versus when how they interact when they are in a kind of more oppressed, um, more controlled environment. So that was what, what I did my MA and my PhD on. And then um, there was the question, what do I do with my behavioral biology, go on with behavioral biology, or... Um, go into psychology. Why go into psychology? Well, the psychologists, they're um, really tricky people. They have the freedom of coming up with an idea. So they think about an idea like philosophers do. But then they can turn around and say, okay, I will test my idea. And I will see whether this idea bears out in reality. And I found that so compelling that you can have your own ideas and test them experimentally um, that I switched over to psychology. In behavioral biology, you can't really do that because the framework is, is more dominion for, for all of them. So you can't just come up with an idea and then test them. Um, so, so then I switched into psychology. And uh, then I went to the United States to work in Penn with uh, Martin Seligman. Um, and I did my postdoc there. And... Um, I really got interested in the question of um, how future thinking triggers action, how hope and um, thinking about the future uh, sort of influences action. Um, and then I knew, okay, psychology it is, um, because the, the themes are so interesting and, um, and the luxury of being able to study all day long and to investigate all day long and to design experiments all day long and then still getting paid for that, this is just heaven. <laughs> and um, so since then, I kind of am pursuing uh, research in psychology, not so much for the career purposes, but um, for the purposes because every day it's fun and you have a new discovery. I love it. You know, one of the things that I do love about your book, about your work, is that you you do not a lot more than come up with ideas. Today we have all kinds of gurus, and I'm going to ask you about them in a minute, but we have all kinds of folks out there, pop psychologists and self-appointed gurus and, and, you know, so on and so forth, who they may find something that doesn't work, and, and then they have an idea as how you go around it, or they just come up with some crazy ideas, but they don't do the work to see that their ideas actually work better than maybe what's going on right now. And one of the things that I love about your book is it's, it is solid evidence. As you put forward an idea, then you, you take that hypothesis and you do test it and you share how it was tested and you share the conclusions. It, it's truly one of the better books that I've read in a great deal of time. So let me do just ask you that then, okay? As I said, yeah. there's no shortage of self-appointed, self-help gurus today offering quick fixes for almost everything imaginable. You can tap your way to riches. 
You can visualize winning the lottery. You can use the secret to manifest your miracles, etc., etc. What say you about this sort of thing? Well, you know, it's hard for me to talk about others and what others do and what work they do. Um, it's easier for me to talk about what surprises we had when we thought positive thinking has positive consequences for um, actually reaching our wishes and desires. You know, we got in and um, we distinguished between two forms of positive thinking. One is the dreams and the fantasies and the sheer thoughts about desirable events in the future, and then the expectancies, and the expectancies are the judgments of whether something will happen or not. And um, originally, we thought, well, probably both forms of thinking about the future, the dreams and, and, and the fantasies on the one hand, and the judgments of whether these dreams come true on the other, will contribute that people actually get the energy and the motivation to realize these dreams. Then we found a big surprise. We found that the expectancies, which are formed based on what I have experienced in the past, so that, for example, a person who has very good grades in the past has high expectancies that he or she will have good grades in the future. So these expectancy judgments of whether she will have good grades, they predicted that people will engage and put in effort and actually have good grades in the future. But for the dreams, we found the opposite of what we actually assumed. We found that these positive dreams and the positive fantasies about the future actually did not only not help, but they actually hurt our efforts and or the participants' efforts and the participants' success to actually achieve these dreams. Give us an example so we of that, will you, Professor? Give us an example of how they actually hurt. Give us one or two of the kinds of studies that you did that demonstrate that this this actually impedes their ability to, um, you know, manifest their their dreams, their ambitions, their goals. Right. So, for example, um, our first study was that we um, had overweight uh, people who had been enrolled in a weight reduction program, mm-hmm. and we measured their fantasies and dreams about the success in their weight reduction program. And we found that the more positively these participants of the program fantasized about losing weight, about their body shape later on, and about how smoothly they will actually go about losing weight, the more positive their fantasies were, the less weight they had lost three months after the beginning of the program and a year later and even two years later. So the more positively these people have been fantasizing about losing weight, the less weight they actually had lost later on. Or in another study, the more positively university graduates fantasized about getting a job in their field, the less offers they got two years later, and the fewer dollars they earned when measured uh, or when asked two years later. So the more positively they dreamt about the success in their job, the less success they actually had. 
And we replicated these findings in, in a host of different studies with respect, for example, students fantasizing about their romantic partner. The more positively they fantasized, the less likely they were actually to getting together with that person on whom they had a crush. Or okay. the more positively people fantasized about recovery after hip replacement surgery, the less well they did in terms of moving the joint in terms of recovery and walking stairs as measured by the, by the physical therapist. So it seems so nice to fantasize positively about the future. It feels good at the moment. It's pleasant at the moment. But then on the long run, I don't get up the energy really to achieve these wishes. To so are you saying, when you say that, are you saying that there's a negative correlation between the more positive the person is and the amount of energy that they put into losing weight or attracting, I mean, what they actually do, uh, their efforts to achieve the grades or to lose the weight? Exactly. That's exactly what we find. There is a negative correlation between the positivity of the fantasies and you, you, the outcome. You know, I have for for a very, very long time um, indeed taken a good deal of criticism from some because uh, there's a popular book called The Secret, and unlike yourself, I will challenge some things straight out. And this book essentially, and, and the followers of it, and the law of attraction, uh, tout the idea that you can just sit around, you can visualize, you can create, you know, uh, a board, a vision board, and, you know, put all the cutouts of the car you want and the house you want, etc. And it just magically will attract this into your life. And I have said for a very long time that that just simply isn't going to get it done. You're going to have to get up and go do something. And then I read in your book a joke. It's a story. It's it's the God of the lottery ticket. I'd like you to share that with our audience because it perfectly fits this negative correlation that you just mentioned. Oh, well, you know, um, you know how it is. Maybe I, I kind of uh, adjust that joke a little bit and sort of say, maybe your, Please your do. own experience. Please do. Your own experience is, is um, that you sometimes dream about, um, you know, winning in the lottery. You feel already how wonderful it will be to sort of um, get the money and put it in your, your home or um, buy a ticket to a have a great uh, vacation. So you dream and dream um, about that, and then after a while you think, why, why is it that I never win in the lottery, whether other people actually win in the lottery? And, um, you know, I'm kind of left out here. Um, it's so unjust. I know, you know, these guys, um, they, they win all the time, things, and, and I'm left behind. And then you you ask um, somebody or you you praise this God and say why why it's always me, and then um, the other person or God tells you did you buy a ticket to your lottery? So you forgot to buy the ticket to the lottery. No wonder that you couldn't um, earn and couldn't reap the benefits of of winning. So that that actually the the principle the principle really is. It's the time and the energy in it. Understand what 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 it 
way. And by understanding what stands in your way, you actually get the energy to go the way into the direction where your dreams guide you. You know, and I really want to get to that. We've got another hour. But before this next break, let me ask you this. Martin Seligman, in his book, Learn Optimism, tells us all about higher achievers and how we can enjoy better overall health, et cetera, and so forth, and paints a pretty negative picture for, you know, those folks that decide they want to invest in pessimism. Um, Tell me this. What's the difference between the kind of learned optimism that Seligman tells us about and positive thinking, the type you're addressing? Right. Now, positive thinking is a very kind of wide concept, and it can entail the optimism that Seligman is talking about and that many people in psychology have been talking about in the past decade. And these are these expectancy judgments. And these expectancy judgments are based on my past. So if I did well in the past, I can expect that I also will do well in the future. And so these expectancies, these judgments about whether I will do well or not, are a good guide in terms of whether I should put in effort or not. And that's the positive thinking that has been kind of the the focus in in psychology in, in the past decade. People were much less interested in the other form of positive thinking, which is kind of occupying our minds, you know, when we wait for the bus. Professor, excuse um, me, I don't want to interrupt you. I love where you're going, but your levels are really dropping. I need you to have that radio voice and and keep okay. you know, the volume up for us, please. Our, our, our audience loves you. I can see that from the chat room, but then they're also having a little bit of trouble hearing from time to time. So if you would, please. Okay, great. So thank you for reminding That's for great. Reminding right there is wonderful. Now, this is, really, is that better? That's great, yes. Okay, perfect. So um, these these fantasies and daydreams, they have been kind of um, left out in, in psychological research, not totally, about, but more or less. And um, so these daydreams and fantasies, they can be positive or they can be less positive. And these daydreams and fantasies are a different form of positive thinking. And as our research shows, with very different consequences for behavior. Um, so when when Marty Zelligman is talking about optimism and learned optimism, then what he's really talking about um, are these expectancy judgments of whether things will happen in the future or not. Whereas when we are talking about positive fantasies and daydreams, then we mean really free thoughts and images about the future, the, the sheer thought about an event. And they don't come from past experiences and past performance. They stem from our personal needs. And we have done some studies where we show that the higher the need for something, let's say for water or something, a need for meaning or a need for relationships, the more positive my fantasies will be. So the origin of positive thinking in terms of fantasies and daydreams is different from positive thinking in terms of 
expectancy judgments or expectations. And this distinction is really important because while positive expectations do predict success, positive fantasies predict low success and low effort and low energy. You're quick to point out that um, there's a problem with affirmations. Expand on that. What is the problem? The problem with? Using affirmations, positive affirmations. Well, with positive affirmations, if you look at Claude Steele's self-affirmation theory, that's still a different um, concept because that really looks at the values and whether you affirm your important values or your less important values. What we're really talking about and what Zeligman has been talking about, at least indirectly, is thinking about the future in terms of expectancy judgments. And that is also the topic of Albert Bandura's work on self-efficacy, which was hugely influential and hugely important to help people understand how important it is to bolster performance and to bolster the expectancies which are based on, on performance as a motivational construct that then enables more effort and more success in the future. So these, these values are still a different um, story. But what we are talking about is really positive thinking about the future and how positive thinking about the future in terms of fantasies, daydreams, versus expectancies predicts the future and actually also causes effort and action towards reaching a desired future. All right. When we come back, I'm, I'm going to ask you to just clarify a couple of points on that. But um, if you would like to know more about Professor Gabrielle Erringen and her work and book, visit her website at whoop, that's W-O-O-P, mylife.org, whoopmylife.org. Now, we have a video for you during the break all about induced after-death communication. Well, it's really not about that, even though that's what my board is saying. The fact of the matter is it's all about the professor's work. You'll get an opportunity to see her in action. So please join us in the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Elton Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. InnerTalk works by priming how you talk to yourself and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals. Anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
We are speaking with Professor Gabriel Uttingen about her life, work, and book, Rethinking Positive Thinking. I welcome all of you back who've been with us in the first hour and all of you who are just joining us now. You can learn more about our guest by visiting whoopmylife.org. That's W-O-O-P, mylife.org. Now, Professor, we just played your second musical choice, Jimmy Cliff singing I Can See Clearly Now. So please tell us, why is this one special to you? Well, you know, that is going back in the 70s when, uh-huh. um, you know, there were, when I was really young and had a lot of kind of ideas about um, life and what I could change in terms of um, making, making people's lives better. And, um, you know, this was a time where uh, we all kind of dreamt about um, to make a contribution. And, um, I think um, Jimmy Cliff did a contribution in instilling hope in lots and lots of people. And um, so when I came to Philadelphia, actually, to work with Marty Zelligman, my topic was hope. Because, you know, being raised in, in after World War II Germany, um, a lot of people um, persisted in a in, a, in an incredibly um, admirable way. So they had a lot of hope for the future. And um, I wanted to find out what is hope all about because Martin uh, Zeligman and many people in psychology, they kind of equalize hope and optimism. Um, I always thought this is something different. Hope is, hope is, you know, keeping your dreams up by the fact that the odds might be not so good. So that's why I sort of differentiate between these two ways of positive thinking. One is the dreams, and you can have dreams, despite the fact that the odds are really against you, despite the fact that the expectancies that things will work out are really low. But the dreams can keep you up still. Um, if you have no possibilities to act, if you have, uh, if you live in a very constrained situation, if, um, if you can't escape, then these positive dreams despite the fact that you have very low expectancies, um, can keep up your spirits. And, uh, I think hope is a very important concept, and that uh, song gives uh, me an impression and, and a kind of feeling of hope. Sometimes hope the only field you can get your hands on. Uh, Before the break, I suggested to you that I was going to come back and ask you, um, clarify a couple of things about affirmations. And and I'm going to do that, but there was a lot of chat in the chat room, um, and they've had some difficulty hearing you. Uh, Some of that chat goes right to the course of an earlier definition that you gave. And, and that, so our listeners are clear, please distinguish again between the two forms of positive thinking. Right. So um, you might so think about expectancies as a commitment to your judgments of whether a desired event for the future will happen or not. So I expect, for example... To have a good grade, because in the past I had good grades. Or I expect that um, this evening I will catch the train to Washington, because I booked my train to Washington and uh, I need to go there, so I expect that I will actually catch it. Or um, I expect that um, my family will help me out if 
um, I will be in need, or whatever. You expect, because in the past, you experienced these events, and um, so you can assume that for the future, uh, you might experience these events again. And the fantasies do not pertain to what, whether a certain imagined event will happen or not. They're just fantasies about certain events irrespective of whether these events will happen or not. So these are fantasies. You could also say, like William James said, it's the stream of consciousness or it's the stream of thought. They're like a stream. They just happen. There are free associations in your mind. And these fantasies, they can evolve despite the fact that you think that the events in these fantasies will never happen. So, for example, you might, let's say you're a smoker and um, you want to stop smoking. You want to, to smoke fewer cigarettes. So you can fantasize about how you can reject an offer of a cigarette and you kind of boldly say, oh, no, not today, despite the fact that you expect that this will not happen that you have low expectancy that you will actually resist. So you can have positive fantasies despite the fact that your expectancy that this event will happen are low. Okay. Let, let's take that for a minute. Assume, uh, assume someone sees a hypnotist. And, you know, for all intent and purposes, their expectation based on hysterosity would suggest they're not going to stop smoking. They, they, they've said they were going to a dozen times, and they just simply haven't. So now they see the hypnotist, and the hypnotist has them visualize, imagine, quitting, and provides them with some post-hypnotic cues, and they walk away, and they quit smoking. Um fractionate or differentiate what's happened here by way of your definition. Okay. Well, I'm I'm not a specialist on hypnosis, so I don't want to, uh, you know, say anything about sure, that, sure. Um, if, uh, about these people or their work, because they know better, the hypnotists, they, they know that better. But what I can say is the more you can positively fantasize about resisting, and you can imagine all the wonderful experiences you'll have once you resist it, despite the fact that you expect, based on your past performance, that this will not happen. So you can fantasize about all the successes and all the, let's say, take our people who are university graduates, and where we found that the more positively they fantasize about the future, the less well they do in terms of acquiring a, a good job. So they positively fantasize about, oh, I get the job, they will be all admiring me, and it will be just great. Mm -hmm. um, but they expect that this will not happen, that they won't get a job offer. Or the other way around. They might negatively fantasize, and they still have high expectations. So these are two forms of thinking about the future. One is the sheer thought, the stream of consciousness, and the other one is the probability judgment that things will happen or not. 
So what we really, what, what you're really talking about is you, you must change the expectation. There must be a congruence between the expectation and the desire, the goal. Uh, and if I got that correct? Well, not so much, because we know from our own research um, earlier in the 90s, but from mm-hmm. much research, um, that to change the expectations is really hard. Why is it so hard? Because you need past performance to change in order that your expectations change. So in, in most cases, the expectations change once your performance. But, but then, isn't that a... how do you change your performance? That's the question, and that's more the question which which we okay. So, but but isn't that exactly what you do when you have them confront, um, you know, a, an obstacle? Uh, systematically begin to change their expectation by mm, providing means or ways, uh, and again, expectations about how they will deal with those obstacles. I'm ahead of us. Let me back up. Let me just ask you this. What is the value to someone who desires to obtain a goal? Uh, to looking at that goal and asking themselves, okay, what's, what could stop me? Uh, what are the obstacles I might encounter? Or is there a value to that, Do- Professor? Well, we need to kind of um, really kind of back up now. Because what we are talking about now is mental contrasting. And what mm-hmm. mental contrasting of what? So mental contrasting of the future and the reality. And what you do there is you first of all think about a wish, not any goal which you kind of think you have, but what is your wish? What is it really that you want? What is a wish that is dear to you, that you want to see fulfilled? And then once you come up with that wish, it can be a long-term wish for you, which changes your life. It can be also a trivial wish, something which you can realize in the next 24 hours. But what do I really want? And once you identify that wish, then you can say, what would be the best outcome? What would be the nicest which would have? What would be the best feeling which I would have if I fulfilled myself that wish? And then once you identify that best outcome, that best feeling, then you imagine that feeling. And now we are still in positive thinking in terms of dreams. So you identify the wish, which is really dear to you. Then you identify the best outcome, the best feeling you would have if you realized that wish. And you imagine that wish. And what you do then, then you shift gears and you say, now actually, what holds me back? What is it that stands in the way in me? of fulfilling that wish and experiencing that outcome. What is my personal obstacle? What is it in me that stops me from actually fulfilling that wish and experiencing that outcome? And then you can dig deeper and say, let's let's take away the excuses. What is it in me that stops me from fulfilling my wish? Once you found that obstacle, 
then you imagine that obstacle. We are away from the expectation. You imagine that obstacle occurring. And once you live through that obstacle occurring, you will understand what you can do in order to overcome that obstacle. And if you want, then you can also put on a plan, an implementation intention, which is accomplished by Peter Goldberg, the author here at NYU. And that implementation intention or if-then plan looks like that. You say, if, and then you imagine your obstacle occurring. And then you say, then I will. And then you put in the behavior to overcome or circumvent that obstacle. And that's your if-obstacle, then I will, behavior to overcome obstacle plan. And that's what we say is whoop. First you identify a wish, then you identify an outcome, the best outcome of fulfilling that wish. And you imagine that outcome. And then you identify your personal obstacle. What is it in you that stands in the way? And you imagine that obstacle. And then you go ahead and make an if obstacle, then I will overcome obstacle behavior plan. And the nice thing in Whoop is that it helps you to set priorities in your life. So if the obstacle in you is such that you can overcome it, and very often you can overcome it if you find the obstacle in you and no excuse, then you will fully commit now and you will really kind of say, okay, I'm determined, I will go and fulfill that wish. But if the obstacle is such that you feel it's too formidable, it's just not, it's too costly, or it's just not feasible to overcome that obstacle, then you will say, okay, I need to adjust my wish. Or you will say, I delegate my object, my um, w wish, or I kind of postpone fulfilling my wish, or I let go from fulfilling my wish. But then you don't have a bad conscience anymore. Because then you can finally leave that wish and put your energy and your effort into projects which are more feasible. So the idea really is that by identifying your obstacle in you, you will understand what you can do to overcome that obstacle and really commit and fully love that wish realizing that wish, and by understanding if the obstacle is too formidable, that you can then, without a bad conscience, leave your the realization of your wish. So you, you, you get rid of a lot of baggage. Okay, let's go back to our smoker analogy then. We have a smoker. The smoker decides he's going to use whoop. He identifies uh, his obstacle. His obstacles well, he are, you know. Says, what do I really want? In terms of well, okay, sure. Okay. He goes through the steps, but let's just go to the obstacle part first, because let's assume he's done the other properly. But, and now but, we identify. Other things are really important. I really want to sort of stress that. I can't stress that enough. Okay. So, what is my wish with respect to reducing smoking? Is so he makes wish. a wish to be free of smoking. Means, yeah, but you know, maybe the wish, the real wish, is. A Maybe wish the wish is what? Kind of Say that again. Feasible. 
the real wish is not quit smoking, but maybe the real wish is, you know, maybe smoking only over the weekend, but not during the week. Or the real wish would be, you know, just half a package instead of a package. So what do I really want? What I think I can also do and what I think is still challenging, but what is realizable for me. Then, okay. then once you have that wish, you can imagine how nice it would be to just reduce your smoking. Let's say only half a package. I would feel, how would you feel? You might say, I feel proud, or I would feel I owe it to my children. Or you would feel, I, I really sort of feel control now. And once you went through that, then you say, actually, what is it in me that hinders me from doing that? What is my obstacle? And then you might come up with something that you haven't thought about for a long time or maybe never. So what is it really that hinders you from reducing your cigarette consumption? And then you might say, okay, well, much alone I smoke when I'm alone. Or you might say, oh, I've never been a smoker, so I'm probably the wrong person to ask. But you might say, you know, uh, when I go to parties, then uh, I, I just, you know, want to be like my peers. Or, um, but you want to really look at what is it in you that stands in the way that you reduce your smoking. Okay. Let's let's go through your steps then with our smoker. You're you're a therapist, you're a psychologist, so we have our smoker. The smoker desires he he she truly desires to stop smoking. They've looked at it, and their wish is not just to smell better and and look better and and be more socially able to do things like attend a movie or a concert or something uh, where they currently can't because they're driven by a nicotine uh, need. And so they, they have completely created this wish, which is about being free, emancipated from the slavery of smoking. Mm-hmm. And and now then they they have visualized um, what it would be like, how it, how it's going to feel to be able to just do what they wish, you know, not spend the money, not be endorsing these tobacco companies, be able to go wherever they want, and 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 when they when they do this, they just feel free, and then they start down their obstacle, and they go, wait a minute, you know, the last time. Well, I got the jitters. I, I shook. I became angry. I was yelling at the wife and the kids. Uh, you know, I, I I really have this physiological need. You know, my memory doesn't even work well because the serotonin levels drop in my in my brain. And da 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 da. And suddenly, the obstacles are. You know what? Smoking just isn't for me. What do you tell that client? So what, what is exactly the obstacle of that client that stands in the way? What is the well, most important internal obstacle? Uh, this particular hypothetical 
uh, you know, it's a combination of all these things. It's he's going to become, he, she going to become angry with everyone around him. Cause look at the last time he tried to smoke. He, he, what? He, he hit a cupboard, broke the door. Uh, he gets impatient with himself. Um, he thinks that, you know, he's, he, he creates a list of obstacles. You think of the right. obstacles that any smoker could marshal up. Now, I haven't smoked in eight years, but I smoked at one time three packs a day. And I've dealt with a lot of smokers firsthand. I know probably every possible obstacle, but they put them all together. Now they have their obstacle. And they're looking at this obstacle, and they say, you know, the obstacles are just too big. It's just unrealistic for me to say, I can stop smoking. So my question is, what do you say to them, Professor? Okay, so you have a wish, which is feasible for you. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask you to hold your answer because we've got a hard break coming up, and I want everybody to hear your answer. So when we come back from the break, the professor is going to share with us what you do Whatever your goal is, when you decide that the obstacles are just too large and you, you it, it's still something that you would like to achieve for perhaps reasons of health or whatnot, we use smoking. This isn't a, you know, I'm going to make a lot of money kind of an obstacle. All right. Well, we're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook and or drop me an email at Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate. And we'll be right back after paying some bills. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now... Back to the show.
Welcome back. We've been chatting with Professor Gabrielle Erdogan about her life, work, and book, Rethinking Positive Thinking, Inside the New Science of Motivation. In this half hour, we will take your calls, so if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is Facebook, so I invite you to join me there today. All right, before the break, well, first, I guess, Professor, we just played Johann Sebastian Bach, The Goldberg Variations. Tell us, why is this one important to you? And again... How does it, you know, what kind of self-disclosure do we get out of this choice in your music? Well, you know, Johann Sebastian Bach was back in Germany, and um, he was in the um, 1700s, uh, sort of a um, a star, and he still is a star, and he has touched so many lives uh, with his music and with his um, kind of also religious message. So um, it's kind of the old world, and um, I talked before that, you know, I'm kind of going back and forth between the old world and the new world, and um, that is um, fascinating how fast um, life changes, even, you know, in in the past two decades with um, all the new um, technical inventions. But um, the music by him um, is staying around and it's... um, kind of very modern uh, whenever you hear it. So maybe some young folks um, don't agree with me, but I still feel um, it's a a very um, important um, influence on our culture in in the old world and in the new world. I must have a lot of old world in me. Uh, I love Bach. So listen, before the break, um, I asked you, we posed this hypothetical about... Let's just assume we have used WHOOP and we have come to the point where obstacles just seem insurmountable. But let's also assume that this is not about an optional kind of behavior, like a choice in business or a kind of career I'm going to have and my obstacle is my IQ just doesn't carry it. This is a kind that a doctor, a clinician, someone is going to say to you, you need to lose the weight. Um, You know, your glycemic index is too high. We need to change your diet. You need to stop smoking or some such thing of that nature. And yet the client says the obstacle's too large. What do you do at this point, Professor? Okay, you want to find out the obstacle and it's not only an obstacle which is kind of fast said, but it's an obstacle in you. So, for example, if the, the smoker says the obstacle in me is uh, my urge, then uh, this is a little bit like an excuse. But then the, the question really is, what is it in you? Why do you have such an urge? In what situations do you have such an urge? And he might find um, the obstacle is that in certain situations, I have the, um, a particular strong urge. And then you could say, um, you know, what can you do to overcome that urge? Okay, there, there are plenty of possibilities to overcome these urges. You know, I do something else. I distract myself. I uh, go and have a social interaction. Um, I will uh, 
do some distractions in the sense that, uh, you know, I, I do some uh, alternative behaviors. I've, I've changed scenes. Um, and so, so the idea really is that once you understand where the urge is the biggest or once you understand that what is in you that really holds you back, such as um, that you may be smoking alone when you're home or that you're smoking a lot at the parties, then you can do something about it. Then you can actually have a, an if-then plan, you say. You know, if the urge comes up um, while I'm going out tonight, um, then I will uh, drink a glass of water instead of um, grabbing a cigarette. And so, or you could even say something like, you know, um, then I think to myself, okay, cigarette next time, this um, this time a glass of water. So you can you can actually by understanding what is it in you that stands in the way, you will also be very creative of finding a behavior around that obstacle. So either to overcome that obstacle, so that once the urge comes that you distract yourself, or to prevent that obstacle, so that you say, you know, if I'm um, uh, going home tonight, I will not go via the, the cigarette shop. Um, I will make a big detour um, uh, around the cigarette shop, and then I go home directly so that I don't even have the seduction of the cigarettes at home. So what what WHOOP is really doing is it it makes you identify a wish which is feasible for you, so not maybe stopping smoking, but sort of going down with smoking, or maybe stopping smoking if that's easier. But it's a wish for you, what you think is important to you and what is feasible for you. And then you imagine the positive, the positive feeling of reaching the wish, and then you go into yourself, what is your obstacle? And that might be um, an urge, but then you can dig deeper and say, why do I have this urge? When do I have this urge so much? Why is it really that I have this urge? Maybe because I'm just too much alone, or maybe that's because I'm nervous, or because I'm anxious for for um, doing a presentation, or I'm anxious of a social interaction. So maybe the anxiety is underlying my urge, and then I grab a cigarette. So then the idea is, if I feel anxious, then I will make it very clear to me that I'd rather start with my task instead of grabbing a cigarette. So every person who is using whoop is an expert of his life. So he can fill or she can fill in best wish, the outcome, the obstacle, and the plan. Because we are all experts of our own lives, much more than the therapist, the trainer is. So we can fill in the content into the whoop. And the nice thing in whoop is that once you in, went through these imagery technique, then non-conscious cognition and non-conscious motivation comes into place, which actually does the trick for us. And that's what our experiments show and that what I sort of describe in the book are these experiments. So once we do the imagery technique of whoop, Things happen, cognition happens, and motivation happens or energization happens outside of our awareness. And these cognitive processes and the motivational processes outside of our awareness then predict the behavior change. 
then predict that I actually reject the cigarette instead of um, grabbing it. So the idea really is it's a technique, which is an imagery technique, which takes advantage of instilling cognitive links and energization outside of our awareness. And these processes then mediate or predict the behavior change. All right. The strategy side of that, the strategy development side of that is all important as well, I take it. Let me ask you this. In your book, and, and again, this is a great book. I'm going to encourage all of our listeners to get a copy of this. Um, but in your book, uh, you talk about the negative aspect of positive thinking for a society, for the world itself globally I'm going to ask you to unpack that for our audience what what on earth could you possibly mean by there are perils to positive thinking globally well I really don't talk about um, perils of positive thinking globally but we did a nice study where we looked at the positivity of presidential speeches and we predicted from the positivity of the inaugural speeches of presidents how Presidential well... Presidential inaugural speeches you're talking about. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then we, we predicted how well the economy develops over time after the, the GDP. Speeches. Right. The GDP. And what we also did in another study to replicate that, we looked at texts in newspaper reports about the um, economy, and we predicted from the positivity of these texts how well the Dow Jones develops a week and several weeks after that. And in both studies we found that the more positive thoughts these texts contained, the less well the GDP and the Dow Jones, respectively, were. So, again, there was a negative correlation between the positivity of thoughts and images about the future and the effort or economic development over time. Meaning, what we found in individuals, we also found in terms of cultural products. Now, how that came about, we only can speculate, but what was interesting is that we kind of replicated on a societal basis the negative correlation between the positivity of future thoughts and the effort and the success that was reached. The chart that appears in your book, drawing this correlation, is very impressive. Um, you know, if history teaches us anything, it would it would tend to suggest that we should be a little more cautiously optimistic. But, you know, what I'd like you to do is unpack the relationship that you found with the 2009 recession and the GDP and it's the expectation, I guess, the the positive attitude that everybody had that led to. Um, why you think 
that recession occurred? Well, the, the we can't have any causal inferences. We can't say, you know, positive thoughts and positive um, kind of zeitgeist would actually cause the recession. Okay. We only Co- have correlation, uh, not causation. Please, evidence. Yeah. We can say predict. So yeah. um, we can't we can't argue causally. But what what we would argue on an individual basis, where we can actually argue causally, because we did experimental research, where we induced one group of people to think really positively, let's say, about the coming week, and other people in the, in the control groups, they were uh, induced to questioning thoughts or negative thoughts or factual thoughts or no thoughts. So these were our control groups. And what we find is that those with a, with a positive thought, those people in the group with whom we made this positive thinking, this positive fantasy exercise, that those people actually were less energized. They were more relaxed. And this low energy, as measured by feelings of relaxation, and as measured, for example, by objective measures such as systolic blood pressure, that these low energy measures then predicted low success and low effort over time, meaning that positive fantasies, positive daydreams relax us for the moment because we think we're already there. We're just sort of already in the, in the, in the positivity of the future. We already experience it. And that relaxes us. And by relaxing, we just do not take the effort to actually go the hard way to reach these uh, positive events in the future. And we don't prepare for all the obstacles and temptations. And we don't we sort of plan for the, for the obstacles. We don't plan for what might come in between. And so we are unprepared. And um, being unprepared means um, that likelihood of and, and do you find that this same sort of influence um, impacts businesses? Well, we never really looked at the development of, of institutions and businesses in terms of whether you could, for example, do a nice study where you look at the positivity um, of the employees, for example, or the positivity of the leaders or the positivity of the um, middle managers or, um, um, or of the, the spirit of a, of a business, um, and then predict how they develop over time. And our prediction or our hypothesis would be um, if they are positively fantasizing about the success of their company, um, that they might not be as careful as they should be. Um, and um, and thus might actually risk that the company um, does less well. Amen. Uh, the, I, well, a couple quick things here. The Gates Foundation, I see, is involved in assisting you with uh, at least your Whoop app, and you've got an application for uh, smartphones. Tell me about your association with the Gates Foundation and tell everybody out there about the smartphone application you have for WHOOP. Well, the Gates Foundation was um, so uh, gracious and and generous um, 
through the College Knowledge Challenge um, organization to um, say, oh, you know, there should be an app for children, for high school students, to get facilitated into applying and actually also managing to go through college. Um, everybody um, knows about the, the problem that many high school students, uh, though they finish school, um, they go, um, you know, not enough to college, so that the transition between high school and college is, is a particularly right. hard one. And um, we think that uh, WHOOP might be um, a facilitator, a helper, a companion for people who um, go through the last years of high school, um, who go through the transition into, into college, um, a kind of friend for them. Um, but how can you convey WHOOP um, to the students, but also to the teachers, and, um, to everybody of us? And so an app might be a good way, and actually... Um, since we created this app, um, I'm using the app uh, a lot, sort of basically every morning, sort of for doing a whoop for my day. So what is my wish for the day? What is the best outcome? If, say, for tonight, um, I would have kind of started that paper or, um, or had a good time with um, my colleagues or had a... A nice evening with my husband. What have you? Everybody has different wishes every different day. But you want to really understand what is important for me today. And then you can whoop that wish. And you can use the app for that because the app forces you to be very specific about your wish, about the outcome. And then you can imagine the outcome, about the obstacle in you. Imagine the obstacles. And then you, the app gives you the opportunity to make a very specific, if obstacles, then I will behave you to overcome obstacle plans. And it has a lot more features. You can you can list your wishes. You can um, actually see how far you got with your wishes. So it is a, a kind of help um, to use Whoop as a daily companion to ease your daily life, but also to assist you in realizing and, and understanding your long-term wishes. So it is um, a friend who, whom you can um, engage in, in helping you um, to, to deal with everyday life and long-term development. Um, it's not a pill you throw in and then you suddenly get the hero, um, and it's not something uh, which uh, magically will help you to fulfill all your wishes. That's not what it is. It's a friend to get involved, to get involved in your work, to get involved in your relationships, to get involved in fitness, um, to get involved in, in, in life. To go forward with a plan and an intention instead of wandering like a robot day to day when the alarm rings and when the 5 o'clock time clock ends. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, Professor. I would like you to share with our audience where they can learn more about you, where they can get this uh, Whoop app, where they can buy your book, Rethinking Positive Thinking, where they can learn about any presentations you have, etc. and so forth. Please give your website and share those details with our audience. So probably the easiest way to 
get more information and and get kind of ongoing information about WHOOP and about also the research behind WHOOP is if you go to the website whoopmylife.org. So it's W-O-O-P for wish, outcome, obstacle, plan. And then in one word, my life, whoopmylife.org. And there you find the book and where you can order online the book, you find the apps, you find a lot of press for the book, you find links to the scientific material, you can write to us with your questions or your experiences um, or with comments about the app. So there's an app for the children, but there's also an app for uh, the adults, and um, you can actually share um, the, the wishes even in Facebook, um, when you use the children's app. Um, and um, we would be happy uh, to hear your comments and get into conversation with you, um, how your experience is with book and um, how you can use that as a, as a daily friend and, um, and, you know, just to fill in your wishes and your concerns so that um, you have a real help uh, for your daily life. I think you've fulfilled a lot of uh, your ambitions, Professor, and that is at least those regarding how you help other people. Uh, we sincerely appreciate you coming to the show, and all of you out there, again, the book is Rethinking Positive Thinking Inside the New Science of Motivation. There's so many more questions I could ask you. I'm going to challenge everybody out there listening, be sure you go and get this book and discover what your dearest friend might be, who they are, and why it's important to you. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again same time next week, same place. And do tell your friends. Until then, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.